Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. You're listening to another episode of the Open Apple Podcast. This is number 19 for September 2012. And despite Ken's best efforts, I am back. Mike, 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 you're back. I'm back. How are you, Ken? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing all right. How did I do last month? Uh, you did great. I really enjoyed it. That was an excellent roundtable for Kansas Fest. Well, thank you, and thank you uh, for editing it. Sure. It uh, put a nice, put a fine point on it. Well, you know, Kansas Fest is one of the reasons we started this podcast in the first place. We wanted to continue that sense of camaraderie and community throughout the year, not just once a year in Kansas City. Sure, sure. So it was great to be able to extend that experience with that roundtable. Uh, yeah, I think you did a great job. How was your Kansas Fest? Uh, I had a great time. Yeah. Yep. Any highlights? Um, you know, I really, really enjoyed what people were referring to as the second keynote. Uh, Randy gave quite an extensive uh, speech on his history as an Apple II programmer through his days at uh, Beagle Brothers and uh, as an Apple II, as an AppleWorks developer. And the video of that session is one of the first videos to come out of Kansas Fest. Rather than wait for me to edit it, I gave that video to Randy, and, he, and his son edited it with the original slides that Randy used spliced into the video. So there's been some extensive editing done, and you can now watch it on YouTube, Vimeo, archive.org, and coming soon to an iTunes near you. Yeah, it, it clocks in at about two hours, but it's definitely worth the time. Yeah, that's about how long it was to watch it in the first place yep. when I was there. What about you? Were there uh, any particular moments that stood out? Well, most of those I discussed on the roundtable, but there have been some developments since then. For example, there was a, for example, I don't remember if I mentioned this last month, but there was a video that I shot of John Romero. I shot his entire keynote speech, but then there was a five minute excerpt where I asked him about the Ouya video game console that is Android based and coming out in March of 2013 after having been funded via Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. I took just that excerpt, wrote a little blog post around it put it on PCWorld.com, and it got picked up by Slashdot, and it really upset a lot of Android fanboys. Interesting. Yeah, Romero did not have a glowing opinion of this upcoming console, and a lot of gamers out there think that he's wrong, and they weren't particularly kind to him. They refused to acknowledge that he has been a game developer consistently in the industry for decades, and all they want to say to, about him is, who cares what some guy who came out with one game 20 years ago cares? That being Wolf 3D, which came out in 1993. Yeah, he he seems to be a, a polarizing figure in the game industry as far as fans go. Um, I know there was some, there are probably still some hurt feelings over the uh, the way Daikatana came out, um, and I, I I know, but but I mean, I, I think overall, when you look at his contributions uh, to the gaming industry, it's it's kind of unfair to, to dismiss him as just some guy that did one thing 20 years ago. Absolutely. And everybody who's met him, even his detractors, say he is such a nice guy. And I would certainly agree with that. Yeah, he's definitely great. Yeah. So I don't It's It's strange to think of such a nice guy as polarizing. And yet there he is. It's probably only because we exist in such a polarizing community where people are always taking sides. Of course. Uh, there was some additional coverage of Kansas Fest that I was able to supply to PC World's sister publication, Computer World, that being my employer. I did a photo and video gallery of HackFest entries throughout the years, and it seems to focus mostly on Martin Hay and Peter Neubauer and a few others. 
because they've been entering consistently for years. But there are also ones by Jeremy Rand and Daniel Kruzna and Ivan Drucker and Michael J. Mann and a couple of others. Sure. So that was cool. I don't know that it got as nearly as much popularity online as you know, the Apple One construction slideshow I did a couple of years ago, or even the Romero video about Ouya, but it was still nice to see a mainstream news outlet pick up any coverage from Kansas Fest. Definitely. So, Mike, one of the reasons you weren't on the show last month is because you are knee-deep, if not deeper, in a move. Yeah, well, we're actually sort of at the uh, the tail end of it. We moved uh, from a, uh, a house to a, a condo um, across town. Um, and it's, it's quite a bit smaller here. And so that's going to take some getting used to, but I think overall it's, if anything, it's going to help us with clutter. And, um, I've been, I've been trying to convince myself that I need to downsize my Apple II collection for quite some time now. And this is the constraints here on space are definitely, uh, adding impetus to that urge that I've had. So, so what's happening to all your old machines? Well, I'll probably hold on to a few uh, of my favorites, and then um, I don't really know. Um, if you can think of any good contests that we could have here on uh, OpenApple, maybe we can give away some equipment, or I can turn to the blog. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Cool. Are you finding it challenging emotionally to let go of these machines that you've held on to for so long? Um, not so much. Um, I, I, the, the hardest part for me is that because I've had them and I've, I've had the space and the, and I've had the space before, it hasn't really been an issue. I've had these plans in the back of my head to take, you know, like, okay, I've got three semi-working Apple IIe's. Let's combine them into one good one and then get rid of the other two as, as parts for somebody who wants it. Um, so that's been kind of my challenge to actually sit down. And of course, now that I'm in a, a place with more limited space, that's even more difficult to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just, I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm good at collecting. I'm not so good at curating the collection, you know, keeping track of what I actually have and what works and what doesn't. But uh, this move has sort of forced my hand on that. So that's probably in the long run, a good thing. Yeah. It doesn't sound like such a bad thing. No. Good. Well, hopefully at the end of it all, you'll end up with the best of the best. Or the best or something, yes. Right. Well, I didn't get to see your new place, but I did spend some time this past month in and around your stomping grounds of Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple of fun experiences. I went to a Denver Apple Pie meeting where I briefly saw you and Randy Brandt. Sure. Uh, it wasn't their monthly, let's have a presentation session. It was just the monthly, let's hang out and troubleshoot presentation. So I was able to <coughs> help one person whose iPad had inverted its colors and i found the preference to switch that (laughs) interesting and then i went up to boulder because they have a mac users group which seems to be even more active than the denver one i don't know what it is about boulder that attracts more apple users but i went to their session and they had uh, jeff gamut from MacObserver.com, whom you and i met last summer he was giving a presentation about the new mac operating system mountain lion and then afterward, I showed him the Juice GS calendar that I was selling at Kansas Fest. And when he saw the CFFA, he's like, ooh, what is that? I want that. <laughs> so I followed up with a tweet because that's the medium Jeff responds to the best. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's ordered one by now. Great. Yeah, he didn't buy anything from me, but Rich Dreher got to say a lot of it. So how long were you out here total? Well, I moved around a bit. When I went to the Denver Apple Pie users group meeting, I was staying in Boulder. When I went to the Boulder Mac users group meeting, I was staying in Denver. And then I was also in Kansas City for a week. Altogether, I was not in Massachusetts from July 12th to August 12th. 
Okay, so a good a good amount of time. Yeah. Not you know, not as long as I have in the past, but long enough to have fun. Nice. And I also met a very interesting person I was out there, someone I never in my life expected to meet. Who's that? Chris Espinoza. Um what would Chris Espinoza be doing out here? Grooming chickens. Say that again. This is not the Chris Espinoza of Apple fame who's been there since almost day one and has a very low employee number. This is Chris C-R-I-S, who is a woman who happens to live in the Denver area and was at the Denver County Fair. Oh, I see. It was funny because I was at the fair with a friend of mine, and I knew from Facebook that this friend of mine had a friend named Chris Espinoza. And every, every time that name popped up on Facebook... I would do a double take. I knew it was the wrong spelling and the wrong gender, but it was just close enough that I'd be like, you know Chris Espinoza? And then we'd go to the fair, and here is this person whose name was causing me to do a double take on Facebook. She came right over and said hi, and we chatted for a bit, and then we went to part ways, and I said, wait, before we go, I have a very strange request. I help organize an annual Apple computer conference every year in Kansas City, and one of the longest running employees of Apple Computer is named Chris Espinoza. And I know that's not you, but I would be thrilled if I could have my photo taken with you. And did she run away screaming? That's what I expected, but she was just glowing. She said, you just made my day. I had no idea I shared my name with somebody famous. I'd be delighted to have my photo taken. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So I put the photo on my blog, and I wrote it in a joking manner as if I actually thought this was the Chris Espinoza. Anyone who read between the lines could figure out that it was a joke. Uh, unfortunately, I guess my sense of humor was a little bit too subtle or a little bit too wry or dry or something because, unfortunately, I seem to have started a rumor that the Apple employee had a transgender operation. Oh, my goodness. Definitely not what I intended. So my apologies to anybody involved who may have been mistaken or offended by this. And unrelatedly, I also met someone named Kent Koninger. Never um, heard of him. Neither had I. I don't think he's involved with the Apple II, but he did work at Apple from around 86 to 92. He was their Cray evangelist, and he said that even in the 80s, he had a 1 gigahertz Macintosh because he basically bought a Cray and put a Macintosh inside it. Okay. (laughs) How did that happen? Uh, How did he do that, or how did they meet him? Well, first, how did you meet him, and then how did he do that? Uh, He's just a friend of a friend, completely randomly. And how did he do that? I don't know, but I did enough Google searching on his name to find old Usenet newsgroup postings and the like that, yeah, he was like the Cray expert at Apple 20 years ago. That's interesting. What would Apple be doing with a Cray? That's what they would use to compile code and things like that because it's much faster than doing it on an 8-bit machine. Yeah, so that's been uh, my unexpected encounters for the past month. That sounds like fun. Yeah. You've been doing anything fun besides moving? (laughs) Well, unfortunately, moving has been taking up most of my time, so... Well, in that case, we should just move along to the next segment of the podcast. (laughs) Nicely done, sir. Hey, this is John Romero, and you're listening to Open Apple. We're back to our regular format this month, which means Mike and I are being joined by one guest and one guest only. We had the option this month of connecting with our guest via audio, serial cable, or Ethernet, and we've chosen the audio. So join us in saying hello to David Schmidt. Well, good morning. You are, of course, the star of ADT Pro, having brought to the community the program that allows us to archive all our disk images and turn them back into disks as well. 
Uh, well, there you go. I I, uh, I can't claim all the credit, of course. You've seen the credits page on the ADT Pro website. It's it, I really glue together a whole lot of stuff from lots of different places. Because there was an ADT before there was an ADT Pro. There certainly was, and it, it was wonderful. And how did you come to become responsible for that program? Well, it, I guess uh, I was using it to uh, transfer images back and forth, and there were some some problems that I had along the way, and it just made me mad enough that I said, oh, darn it, I'm going to do something about this. Well, here I go, and um, lo, ADT Pro was, was born. Did you have to seek any permissions from the original author? I, I did. Uh, I sought permission, um, especially about the name. So the, the software itself is open source. So as long as I give credit where credit is due, um, continue to supply the original source, whatever the case might be, right? Just obey the GPL. Uh, we're cool. But uh, the name was something that, that I wanted to really respect. And so uh, I did go and, and, and seek uh, permission to, to use the same, the, the, you know, the same derivative. I, I had other names picked out and that sort of thing. It was going to be DDT at one point, you know, Dave's disc transfer and whatever. But, uh, I thought, well, it, I would really like to sort of preserve that lineage because especially at first, uh, it, it follows very closely the ADT model, the, the protocol that it used. Um, and, and a lot of the functionality really internally is the same. So ADT Pro obviously wasn't your first foray into Apple II programming, was it? Well, you know, I'll have to think about that. Um, I, of course, like a lot of folks, you know, started in school and um, we learned programming, basic programming, Pascal, assembly language programming in, in my school. I uh, uh, grew up in Minneapolis, the, the you know, birthplace of the famous Mech Computing Consortium. So we uh, apples were very much a, a large part of our, our kind of elementary and, and uh, high school education. Um, so I, of course, had that in, in high school uh, quite a bit. But then I kind of, well, I, I came from a family that wasn't uh, quite as wealthy as everyone in, in my school district. So I ended up going down the Commodore route afterwards. So I, I of course, became familiar with 6502 assembly language programming that, that uh, moved over into the Commodore realm just fine. But uh, I really didn't have anything else to do with the Apple until... Uh, later in life when, you know, I happen to have disposable income of my own. And of course, those apples got cheap enough that you can find them on the street, right? There was a time when schools were giving them away because they wanted to get rid of them and whatever else. So I was finally able to get some for myself. And, and that's when I uh, really got reacquainted with the wonderfulness that is 6502 assembly and and the apple and everything else. So when was that? Are we talking early 90s? I had the briefest encounter in the early 90s. I went to a ham fest with my wonderful uncle who uh, was or is very interested in um, ham radio and, and electronics and all that sort of stuff. So he took me to a ham fest and I found a, a Franklin Ace 2200. Um, the, the user manual to which I uh, donated to, to Mike to scan. Oh, that's and right. That was, that was from you. Yep. Thank you. Oh, well, you're, of course, very welcome. But yeah, so we bought that in, uh, what, when would that have been? 1989, 1990 or so. And it was dirt cheap. This 2200, a Franklin Ace 2200 was dirt cheap. And that's, as you know, kind of a, a 2E clone. And so I, I had kind of a brief, um, you know, interlude there where I was doing a little bit of Apple programming. But then 
uh, you know, college started and we were using, uh, big computers and, and Unix. And, uh, I bought a, an IBM compatible because I needed to hook up to the school computers and everything else. So I kind of forgot about the Apple until, uh, I, you know, my next stage in life, right. I had gotten married and had kids and that sort of thing. and was sort of thinking about reliving my, my youth and, one of the things that I did back in my first foray, right back in the school days, was of course we all played the games. Like uh, you know, Ultima was my favorite, and a Calabeth before that, and um, I, you know I wasn't a shoot 'em up kind of guy, but but I really liked the the uh, fantasy role playing games. So my my goal for ADT really was to reconstitute those disc images. Um, it's one thing to play those games on emulators, but um, I, there's nothing like the real thing. There's nothing like really booting it up on the actual machine and hearing the disc noises and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. In fact, the University of Texas Video Game Archive did a study specifically on Ultima regarding how people enjoyed it, whether it be on an emulator or on the original Apple II or in yet a different environment. And time and again, people enjoyed it more in the original environment, whether or not they were acquainted with it from a past experience. And that was often because that's how the game was designed to be experienced. It's so perfectly suited, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, you bump into the door of a town and the disc scratches and it lets you in and it's just, it's all part of the experience. Now the games may have led you to create ADT Pro, but you haven't limited yourself to those contributions. If I understand correctly, you've been involved with Boot Zero, Ethernet, CFFA, FC five hundred two five, and many other hardware devices. How did you end up collaborating with so many unique individuals? Well, you've got to understand, I'm a two-trick pony, right? I do communications and I do uh, disk work. Right. So it's, it's really the same thing, just in lots and lots of different venues. So, um, often I will, you know, uh, approach these hardware guys with that, um, pretext of, Hey, wouldn't it be great if your device, excuse me, your device worked with ADT Pro? And they'd say, Oh, sure. Um, let me throw one of these at you and you can give it a try. That sort of thing. So that's how I, I got acquainted with Boot Zero. And of course, well, I guess it was a little bit different with Rich and the CFFA. Um, I am a an early and frequent contributor to uh, to CFFA cards uh, because I, I think they're the coolest device ever. Um, but then, of course, that limits yourself to ProDOS. And uh, notwithstanding, ADT Pro runs on ProDOS. My ideal environment is kind of the way uh, Waz envisioned it, a, a 2 or a 2 plus with DOS 3.3. Um, okay, not three one or three two, but really three three because that's the least buggy of those that that line. And what's so ideal about that? That's that's where I started, right? Our our first Mac computers in the Minneapolis system were those uh, Apple II, and it, later the two plus machines. Um, I remember we had a uh, in our little bitty lab we had a a two that only had thirty two k of memory and several other two pluses that of course had forty eight k. And the the poor lone 32k machine would kind of sit off in the corner because it didn't have enough memory to run Threshold and whatever else the uh, the games that those crazy kids were playing at the time, Gorgon, that sort of stuff. Um, but the neat thing about the uh, the two machine that wasn't two plus was of course the ROM because you had the uh, mini assembler in ROM. FC, let's see, what is it? F666G. 
Well, if you go and, and uh, you know, U2E people and 2GS people, you're spoiled because you just hit bang the exclamation point and you get the mini assembler. But uh, when you were on a 2 Plus, you didn't have that. You you had to go to the old uh, integer ROMs to get it. I understand there's another machine that's caught your eye, one that you and my co-host have in common as something of an anomaly in the Apple II community. It is not anomalous. <laughs> How dare you, sir? My apologies. I would say that it's rarer than the Apple II. Yes, quite a bit, isn't it? We are speaking, of course, of the Apple III. Yes. And you have contributed to the development of various hardware and software compatibilities with the Apple III. Yeah. Um, and the the story about the Apple III is, uh, I don't know if, or my story with the Apple III is, is not uh, glamorous or anything. I, I had a friend uh, that I met at work who uh, he, he and his wife have a, a house that had a, a room at this on the side where that was kind of the, the hobby room. She was a weaver and she had a loom and he had his Apple three that was sitting next to the loom, the loom. This would have been in 1992 or so, 92, 93. And I said, Oh, that's kind of cool. That looks like an Apple two, except it's got this big hump on the back. What's that all about? He said, Oh, well, it's an Apple three. I bought that in college and thought it would be cool. And all I ever did with it was, uh, made it be like an Apple II. Hmm. I booted uh-huh. the emulator and off I went. So, but I, th- yeah, I think I think that's a typical experience for most Apple III users. Sure, yeah, and and it caught my eye, and I remembered it years later and thought, you know, what was that thing? And I went and hunted it down and and found out what it was and you know learned all about it and and then by the, by then I was hooked up with ADT Pro and um, you know trick number two. Dave says, hey, wouldn't it be neat if that uh, RS-232 port out the back could talk to ADT Pro. And, and so there there I, I went. I went back to my friend's house and said, Hey, Tony, do you remember that Apple III you had? He said, Oh, yeah, that's down in the ba- basement somewhere. Let me dig that out and I'll give it to you. Well, he didn't give it to me. I'll, I'll borrow it. And, uh, and so that's where that started. And since then, you've contributed to the development of programs like Davex, CiderPress, Open Emulator, Apple Commander, and many more. Yet yeah, all all in support of my one or two goals of either communications or uh, disk operation. And another project that you have all to yourself, as opposed to a collaboration, if I understand correctly, is Apple3.org? Oh, well, yeah. So uh, b- back hmm, several years ago, I suppose, there was um, uh, a, a group of people that put together um, this. It wasn't a whole lot more than... A, um, a glorified FTP site, really, of Apple3.org. And so it had, you know, a number of, of, uh, you know, software and, 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 uh, scans of various things, you know, whatever it might be, whatever collateral they could kind of gather in digital form on, on the Apple3. And so there was a, a time when the, uh, the domain name was coming up for renewal and nobody seemed to want to take it. And I thought, well, you know, I, I would like to, to, see that continue and and i've got a couple of really dumb ideas maybe i could uh throw together the the tiniest bit of of html and and we dress it up a little teeny tiny bit and so it's um so that's what's happened now is it's just slightly more grandiose than it was before um but it's it's basically you know everything that i can scrape together that people don't yell at me to take down and uh and i i have this this you know dopey little content management system that that uh, was written in about 10 lines of java code that uh, you know whatever 
whatever assets I come across, I can throw it in this little you know, quasi database and it spits out HTML so that you can click on stuff and, and download whatever it is you're interested in. So you mean you're, you're one of the few Apple sites in the retro computing community that's not using WordPress? <laughs> I might be the only one. Is there a name for this CMS? Is it something you developed? Yeah, it's Dave's Dumb CMS is what it's called. <laughs> DDCMS. Yeah, great. <laughs> and the sequel, of course, will be DDCMS Pro. Oh, goodness. Let, let's only hope not. So, and, and, you know, the only thing that it does that's interesting is, is, uh, I can take things like Mike's scans and instead of having the actual content, because I don't want to copy his content after he's done the work to scan something, is I have a URL that, uh, it, it looks the same on the site and you can click on it and it downloads, but what it really does is it redirects over to Mike's site to do the actual, um, you know, content redirection download thing. Isn't that known as hot linking? Sure. Let's call it that. Okay. <laughs> and Mike, you're okay with that? Yeah, I'm fine with that. I actually ask him before I put those links on there. Oh, what a novel concept. Shocking. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. Lean off the news this month is a tip of the hat to Ewan Wenup, who has been mentioned on this show several times. We've lambasted him, we've glorified him, and this time he falls into the latter category for releasing his renowned telecommunications program, Spectrum, as freeware, previously having been a commercial product sold by Syndicom most recently. It is now something that you can download for free from Ewan's website, a link to which, of course, will be in the show notes. Is lambasting a good thing or is that a bad thing? It's a bad thing, but we gotcha. don't pull any punches here on Open Apple. We haven't vilified him yet. That's still on the list. So. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, and it's then right we're going to go through the rest of the thesaurus and right. you know, see how many listeners we don't have when we're done. <laughs> Either of you Spectrum fans? Um, yeah, I certainly am. And one of the things that I did with uh, Ewan's work most recently was uh, taking his uh, Sweet 16 starter kit, which, of course, works with the uh, Sweet 16 emulator. And I, I took that and, and repackaged it for the uh, GS port emulator, which is uh, another uh, GS emulator that, that has the ability to, to run uh, Ethernet. So, uh, and of course, it's got a, it needs a different driver and that sort of thing for Ethernet. So I was able to take that and, and uh, set, uh, pre, pre-configure it to run on the GS port emulator and then repackage it with his permission and, and post it up on the GS port download site so that people can immediately use, uh, those, his ethernet enabled applications with, uh, another emulator. Wow. That's fantastic. Opening up spectrum to a whole new audience. Yep. Exactly. Other than increasing the distribution, have you also been a user of spectrum? I personally haven't until, until the, uh, internet starter kit came along. Um, that wasn't something that, uh, I, I had used very much, right? We used it to, uh, build and test the GS port emulator. Uh, of course we, we had, uh, Glenn Jones's, uh, Ethernet uh, emulation as part of that package, as part of the GS port emulator, uh, in terms of building it. And then of course we used that, we used Spectrum to, to test it to be sure that it was, it was working correctly. Um, it was just you know, one of a number of applications, one of a number of, of Ethernet applications that we used to uh, to make sure that the, the emulation was working correctly. And what about you, Mr. Mike? 
Uh, Mr. Mike. Uh, no, I have not used Spectrum. Hmm. I'm surprised. I'm apparently the only fan here. Well, I think Spectrum was uh, exclusive to the 2GS, right? Yes. Yeah, and I, I've never been a big 2GS user, so especially for uh, telecommunications. My telecommunications really hit its stride when I got my first 2GS in 88, and I remember logging on to the CompuServe service that back then had three Apple II forums, Apple II users, Apple II programmers, and Apple II vendors. In the vendors forum, there was a section specifically for Seven Hills Software, where I religiously followed all the news about this fantastic new program that was going to come out someday. <laughs> Finally, it did come out, and it was Spectrum, and it was awesome. Nice. I wrote a lot of scripts for that. In fact, to this day, the only two programming languages I really feel like I know how to use are AppleSoft Basic and Spectrum Scripting, if you can call that programming, which I do. I wrote scripts that would interact with CompuServe and Cinecom chat forums that you could play games like Hangman and Mad Libs through a standard chat room. And I automated a whole bunch of different processes. And I actually was using Spectrum as recently as last week to take screenshots of some of my HackFest entries for that gallery that we talked about during the introduction. Cool. Yeah. Very cool, yeah. I probably need to download it anyway from Ewan's website, though, because I think I have a fairly outdated version, and I need to probably get the most recent one. When I do download Spectrum from Ewan's website, that will be a free download. You can also download it from Cinecom.com for $25, because they were formerly the commercial vendor for this product. Now that's been reclassified freeware, the Cinecom store needs to update itself to either remove that product or remove the fee. Uh, so if you have the option of paying for it from Cinecom or getting it free from Ewan's website, the latter is the cheaper and just as legal version. Now what's the difference between uh, Spectrum and Sys? So there's Sys stands for Spectrum Internet Suite, and uh, as I understand it, that's the that's the the guts that that delivers the uh, the transport layer plus applications on top of it, right? Typical internet applications that you think of FTP and um, Telnet, <laughs> whatever else. Well, Sys, so, Sys itself is the GUI web browser, which requires Spectrum. And then there are separate programs like Snap and Safe, which are the NNTP and FTP clients. And I think the latest versions of those are standalone programs that don't require Spectrum, although they didn't start that way. Yeah, the, the, the versions of Snap and Safe that I've used don't require the Spectrum. Right. But unfortunately, there is no version that I know of of Spectrum Internet Suite that doesn't require Spectrum. But now that Spectrum is free, you have no excuse. That's right. Did did you reclassify Sys too? Because Sys has always been open source, but if you want the compiled executable, then you need to pay $15 from Cinecom, I think, at least according to the Cinecom website. Can you download it from Ewan's site? I'm not seeing it as something you can get from his download center. Okay, so this must be a product that he hasn't reclassified. Uh, Spectrum Family in scripts, he has Spectrum Deluxe, Spectrum 253, the 251 update, and, uh, yeah, and then XCMD and stuff like that. So Those being uh, extension modules that you can add into Spectrum for free to add more scripting tools. Right, yeah, but I don't see... Um, well, actually, download or read more about the Spectrum Internet Suite web browser, so maybe you can. Uh, okay, so that links over to Jeff Weiss's website. Mm-hmm. Or you can a compiled and ready-to-run distribution of Sys is available at the Syndicom store. Or you can build your own from the source. Right. 
So you're paying for the convenience of having a ready-to-go version. Correct. Cool. So now Spectrum is free, ProTerm is free. No matter what model of Apple II you have, you can get it online. Nice. There you go. Great. Unfortunately, there's one last place you can go online with your Apple II, and that is the Age of Reason BBS. Yeah, that was uh, some sad news that uh, Gene posted uh, at Compasys Apple II. Uh, some users had been unable to get to the Age of Reason through Telnet for a couple of weeks, and he posted that he'd finally re- uh, pulled the plug on it because he just didn't have time to run that anymore. And uh, while there are plenty of Telnet BBSs out there still available, this one actually ran on a real Apple II. What software would one use on a real Apple II to make it into a Telnet accessible BBS? You know, I don't know what he had running on the back end there that uh, made the translation. So, Was it also something you could dial into with a modem? Um, I, well, I think originally it was, and, and uh, but I think the final incarnation did not allow that. Hmm. Have either of you ever dialed into Age of Reason? I did. I created an account there, uh, and I browsed around a few times. No, I can't say that I did. Unfortunately, neither did I. I was a big BBS user in the early 90s, but not so much since then. Mm-hmm. Even if it was Telnet accessible. There are just already so many other places and destinations for the Apple II community that I love the nostalgia of offering one that's a little bit more retro, but it also just seems like one more place to go on my to-do list. It's really all about communication, isn't it? it having a, a community of people to talk to and whether you're doing that over Twitter or Facebook or Usenet or email, right? That's, I think that's really what it's, what it's all about. Or, or BBS, right? Right. <laughs> Close the loop there. Right. Still, it's always had to see one less place to go for, ha- for that communication. Yep. Right. Well, as of our recording, the, the Compsys Apple II thread is still ongoing and, and, uh, um, Gene has been active in participating in that. It looks like there's some fairly detailed technical discussion on on what you would need to set up an Apple II Telnet accessible BBS. So, so maybe something will rise from the ashes if it's not by him, then by somebody else. Possibly, yeah. It looks like some people are playing around with ideas, and Gene's giving suggestions. So, what's next? We'll see the return of Syndicom online. No, no, no wait, that was a good thing. <laughs> oh, okay. I liked Syndicom. <laughs> so did I. I. I miss it, yeah. Probably because I ran half the forums on there. Ah, there it is. You're just power hungry. <laughs> Speaking of rising from the ashes, it's been almost a year since Apple co-founder Steve Jobs passed away. Shortly thereafter... He's back? No, that's tasteless. Oh. oh. Now go in the corner Sorry. and stay quiet. Okay. Shortly after his passing, there was unearthed a videotape with an interview conducted by Robert X. Cringely. And this interview with Steve Jobs was aired very briefly in theaters last year. It was dubbed Steve Jobs' The Lost Interview. And from what I hear, it didn't really reveal anything earth-shattering, but it was just nonetheless a previously unseen interview with Steve Jobs, which was kind of cool. Most people probably didn't get the chance to see it in theaters, but now you can see it online because it is available from iTunes. Are you sure this isn't like a zombie Steve Jobs thing? <laughs> oh, rising ashes. Oh, yes, boy. exactly. You got me all excited, and that was oh. just an interview. Because everything on. else has zombies nowadays. Why not Apple? Well, sure. Here comes the zombie Apple apocalypse. Exactly. Well, in this case, it's just a movie, and you can't buy it, but you can stream it for a three ninety nine rental, at least in the United States. It is a widescreen, 843 megabytes, one hour, 12 minute, and 19 seconds film. It's actually a very good, uh, a very good film if you're interested in 
uh, where Steve Jobs was in uh, as far as his mindset and and where he was in his career because I think this was done at at uh, Next before he returned to Apple. Ah, so he had that perspective on the company that he'd left. Right. Yeah. Does this mean that you got to see this interview? I did. Yeah, I, I got this from. Uh, I, I watched. I did watch it on iTunes, and um, it's it's typical Steve Jobs. Uh, you know, he he doesn't hold back. Actually, he did hold back uh, when when the um, subject of especially when the subject of, of John Scully came up. He mm. he was unwilling to really discuss his feelings about the man too much, but it was clear that he was not happy with what had happened and the direction that Apple had taken since he left. I wonder if Steve always expected that he might come back to rule the roofs that he founded. I bet I bet in his heart of hearts that's that was a dream that he had hmm. and it came true. Dave, did you read the Steve Jobs biography that came out last year? You know, I didn't. And uh one of the reasons is I I've always been a Steve watcher, right? I, I That devour. sounds a little creepy, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Just follow him around Silicon Valley. Oh, absolutely. Steve, what are you going to say now? That's right. um, so I, I felt like there really wasn't anything that a new book was going to reveal to me. So I didn't feel the need to go and, and get, and get another, yet another source of information that, that I've already had. So, so I wasn't too excited about that, I have to say. And now that Steve Jobs has passed away, have you moved on to being a Steve Waz watcher? Oh, good heavens. <laughs> Is that a yes or a no? <laughs> Well, I, I, I've, I've fo- probably followed Waz a, a little less, um, because he's, he's been less in the limelight, really. You know, Steve has always been a larger than life character. Wherever he was, whether it was, um, at Apple in exile at, uh, at, at Next or back at Apple again, um, he was just, he's always front and center. Um, the, the reality distortion field just continues to exist wherever, wherever he went. Um, where was, you know, he's, he does amazing things and then, you know, kind of goes off and does something else, whether it's, you know, running the us festival as he did back in the eighties or, you know, go, decides to go fly airplanes or, um, go back to college in the early days, like he did, or, or if he's on dancing with the stars, right. He's, he's, uh, certainly doing interesting things, but, but it's just not larger than life the same way that Steve uh, jobs was. So basically, nowadays, Steve Wozniak is not redefining technology as we know it the way Steve Jobs was. Well, I suppose not. And maybe he's you know sitting back and enjoying life, enjoying some of the fruits of his labor. And that, that should be something that he's allowed to do, too. Absolutely. And I think he's still pushing the envelope. I know that some of the stuff Fusion IO is doing with RAM and memory is supposed to be cutting edge. Sure. And, and I, and I will say that whenever he, or a lot of times when he's on a speaking engagement, you know, he'll, he'll be, uh, a guest speaker at, at one conference or another, and often they'll stream those or put those on, on YouTube. And I, I always enjoy looking at those too. Cool. Well, it was actually from Steve Wozniak's website that I recently found a link to my own employer's website, Computer World. Somehow this story had escaped me when it was originally published. And that story is that another Apple One is going up for auction at Christie's. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah, you got, you got the dough for this? I'll take two. Right. <laughs> well, two would cost you $252,000, but only one of them is for sale for half that at one hundred twenty-six k. And this one is being billed as inoperable. Yeah, this is listed on uh, – this particular one is listed on Mike Will Eagle's Apple One registry. Uh, it went actually went up for sale 
uh, on eBay back in December for a starting bid of $170,000 and didn't sell. Um, but if you read the details on this, um, it, it's missing DRAM um, and some other stuff, so it's it's not going to be in a working condition. It can be repaired, right? I assume so. I know hardware, guys. Absolutely. Because I would think that many Apple ones that are being sold nowadays are probably not in working condition or they're not featuring all their original parts. I think the last Christie's auction had some replacement parts and the Sotheby's auction was billed as one of six working Apple ones, but I'm sure that number can fluctuate both up and down. Yeah, certainly. And and it was uh, certainly common at, in the day, too, to swap parts in and out. So um, the the likelihood of, of having something exactly as it came out of Waz's garage, I think, is you know, pretty low. Especially 36 years later. Exactly. And uh, also, in terms of working versus non-working, I think that by the time we get into this sort of stratosphere of pricing, it, it's it's more dangerous to try to turn the thing on. To, to even find out if it's working, right? The, the risk is so high of, of blowing something or, you know, further rendering it inoperable, you're, you're just better off leaving it off. So truly, tr- a truly sad right, state of affairs for a machine that was meant to run. I think it's viewing this item as a computer that causes people to ask, why are they paying so much for such a decrepit piece of junk that can mm-hmm. do so little nowadays? And you're right, people who are buying Apple Ones aren't buying it as a computer. They're buying it as a historical artifact. Yep, certainly. If you if you want to look at the actual unit that's being sold, that's also up on Mike Will Eagle's um, Apple One registry, and you can see the empty sockets for the DRAM. Um, and it looks like it has the cassette interface. Uh, I wonder if they're going to sell that with the board itself. I don't know, but I do know that it goes up for auction sometime in October. 126 on October 9th? Yes. Great. Thank you. The Computer mm-hmm. World story is lacking that detail as far as I can yep. see. We have it on A2Central.com. All right. Well. Who's the news outlet now? <laughs> That's right. No, I'm sorry. It does say the one Christie's will sell in London on October 9th features a sleek-looking plastic case reminiscent of the follow-up Apple II. That's buried in, like, the seventh paragraph. The 126000 is the topmost range that Christie's has estimated this to be. It starts at 79000 and knowing past auctions, it's probably going to blow away both those numbers. Probably so. You know, when I uh, finally did acquire my own Apple III, I, I had grandiose visions of, oh, maybe I could get an Apple I also. But then, mm-hmm. and, and this was, you know, s- some number of years ago, and, and it was back in the, you know, ten dollars or $20,000 range on, on eBay. And I thought, oh, geez, there's just no possible way that that would make any sense in any world that I live in. So just what they've gone up to 10 times, 20 times that, it's just, sorry, just makes no sense whatsoever. But there are so many replicas you can get that if you actually are looking for the computer as opposed to the historical artifact, Mm -hmm. you can get a replica one or something like it. That's right. I might even get to solder it together. That would be cool. And you might do so with Vince Briel looking over your shoulder if you come to Kansas Fest. Yes, indeed. I've seen the pictures. You know you want to. (laughs) Everyone does. All the cool kids are doing it. <laughs> the, the Huffington Post, in, in their typical style, has uh, an article about this, and they, they've listed it. They, they've The headline calls this an ino- inoperable original Macintosh computer. What? Yeah. Dopes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I loved it what Obama said during a speech to the press a couple of months ago. It was, 
You know, Huffington Post, nobody is linking to the hard-hitting news that you guys are. Great work. <laughs> That's funny. Good job, guys. <sighs> this Apple One may be inoperable, and I've also heard reports that something else has gone inoperable, which is ActiveGS, the best of FTA app for iOS. But I'm getting conflicting reports on that because one of the developers posted in their own in the FTA group on Facebook on July 31st that their app had been rejected and I presume he's speaking about ActiveGS because that's the name of the group he's posting in but when I go into the iTunes store and do a search for ActiveGS the best of FTA it pops right up Hmm. it says version 1.22 updated April 5th 2011 and is that because you've already downloaded it is that how the iTunes store works it lists applications that you own well yeah I think that they sometimes then, and it's, it, there seems to be a double standard here. But for some applications, if you purchased and downloaded it, even if Apple pulls it from the store, it'll still be there for you when you go back in there. Even though, if say I hadn't bought it, I would not be able to see it. And then there are other ones that they pull entirely. Hmm. So if if you if you bought it and you didn't make a backup and you um, deleted it from your iPad, then it's gone. Well, that's interesting because I just noticed the version I have downloaded to my Mac is version 1.21. The latest is version 1.22, and the App Store listing for this product ha- presents me with the option to update. So I presume hmm. if I click this, it will download the latest version, even though it's been rejected by the App Store? Uh, I think so. All right, well, I'll click that button and see what happens. Maybe no, well, it'll just I, delete what I have already. I don't know. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but Not let good. me let me bring it up on on my app store because I haven't certainly haven't bought it. Okay. Yeah, I'm downloading version 1.22 now to update the version that I already had locally. It's just a message that says "Ha ha, fooled you," and then it deletes your program. <laughs> um, and and what is it called? Is it Active GS? Yeah, yeah. you full- can search for either that or Best of FTA. Yeah, either one should work. Now, oddly, when I download the program, I do a get info on it in my iTunes store listing, or rather in my app listing, and it still says version 1.21. Hmm. So maybe they just didn't update the resource fork or something. <laughs> Spoken like resource forks. Darn them. Oh, this is the worst, I- <laughs> the worst idea. Second worst idea in c- computing history is... Forking files. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. That was not the way to go. I have no opinion on the matter. I don't know anything <laughs> about it. As a computer scientist, I have to tell you, that was ill-conceived. It, it got a cool thing done that needed to get done back in the early days of, of the Mac OS. And and uh, kudos to the guys for figuring it out. But there, that has caused no end of problems. I should have asked you this much sooner, David. You just mentioned being a computer scientist. What is it that you do? Uh, professional computer geekery. <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Very mysterious. So I, I wasn't able to find anything under best of FTA or active GS. So that's could be my yep. Google foo is off, um, but it doesn't seem to appear in my app store. So Apple is making it available just to me. Because you are special. My mother thinks so. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that is only one of a parade of iOS apps that we have to discuss on this month's Open Apple. The next is iShizen by Kelvin Sherlock, a former guest of this show. It is still available, as are all the apps we'll be discussing, unlike ActiveGS. The difference here is that iShizen has been updated for the new Retina iPad 3, so those tiles on that puzzle game have never looked better than they do now. Anybody here have an iPad 3? Nope. Cricket's chirping. 
David, do you even have an iPad? I do, in fact, have an iPad 2. Um, I foisted an iPad 1 off on my poor, unsuspecting mother. I said, hey, mom, wouldn't it be a great idea if you and dad could try this iPad thing and let me know how you like it? <laughs> so I got to order it for them on their credit card. And and uh, so they have that now. And I, I thought, well, this is pretty cool, but I'll wait for the second version. So I did. Nice. Mm-hmm. Thanks, mom. Yeah. A year and a half ago, there were no iPads in my immediate family. Now there are four. But three of them are iPad 1s, and only one of them is an iPad 2, and no iPad 3s. Oh, well. Such is life. So no retina eyeshizen for me. David, I understand you have a rant that you wish to share with us regarding the <laughs> retina display? Well, so I, I would say only that it it's one of those things that Apple does that is is, is maddening, but... In retrospect, you go, oh, yeah, of course, right? So it's like when Apple decides, all right, today we're not going to make computers with floppy disks anymore. <laughs> well, okay, that was really stupid at the time, but now we go, oh, yeah, um, great. Uh, and so I imagine we're in the same boat with the uh, like Mac Mini. I have, a, I have an older Mac Mini, and it's got a CD slot, and it's great. I can burn CDs and put CDs in, but they don't sell them with CD players anymore, CD drives. So you go, oh, geez, great. Now how am I going to burn CDs? Well, we don't burn CDs anymore. Everything goes to the, the cloud. So, and we get to pay Apple to do that, but right. So, so these technologies kind of come and go and, and we get mad when they, uh, when they change, but we realize eventually it's probably for the better. So we're all mad right now about the retina display because it takes, um, you know, four times the memory. Um, the content creators, you know, Ken, you must know about this, right? The content creators have to create, uh, uh, files that are four times as big. Well, I don't know, three and a half times as big as they used to be to, to make them, to make the pictures look good. Why would I know anything about that? <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. Um, but if, so I had a discussion, uh, at the last, was it the last Kansas Fest actually with, uh, Jason Scott, um, about scanning, uh, PDFs and scanning this old, uh, Apple documentation. And, and he suggested that I do it at 800 DPI rather than the 600 DPI that I had, had been using, uh, specifically because that's pretty much the resolution that you need, uh, in order to get a good image on a retina display. Uh, unfortunately, the file sizes go up about four times in size. Yep, exactly. So, and there's, so there's, there's certainly a trade off there. Yeah. Eventually we'll go, of course, everything should be that size and, and right. there won't be any argument anymore. But right now it, it's causing consternation in the, as I understand it, Ken, in the, the, the industry of, of um, electronic news delivery, that sort of thing. It hasn't caused me any consternation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have any retina displays. So how would you no. know? Right. You know, I leave the packaging to somebody else. I just actually write the stories. Oh, weird. Yeah, you know? Actual production of something weird. Yeah, as opposed to just re- reappropriating an aggregation. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Retweeting. Well, yeah, eventually the content has to originate from somewhere. Really? Yes. I don't think so. No, no, I, mean, I, I don't buy it. I think everything just points to everything else. There's no actual content there. So if you follow the infinite loop, you just end up back where you started? Exactly. Oh, dear. Yeah. So what is it that everybody's reblogging if nobody is blogging? Nothing. Oh, God. I knew that's what I had to say. <laughs> Mr. Mike, what other iOS apps can we talk about this it's month? the second time you called me that. <laughs> yes, and there will probably be a third at some point. I'm sure there will. Uh, so do we want to move on to other... Oh, yeah, of course we do. Um, 
So we've talked in the past about the uh, about Brian Fargo's efforts to bring Wasteland uh, to a modern platform through Kickstarter, um, and I think we covered probably in a recent episode of this very podcast, the Bard's Tale, uh, the Bard's Tale's availability on iOS, and as of this month, uh, August fourth, I think you can now get it for your Macintosh uh, through the App Store, and I believe it's also coming out for Android. Oh, okay. Well, and this one, I, I'm pretty sure this is the one that's based on the, the 2004 PC version of The Bard's Tale, not the original 8-bit titles that, that appeared back in the 80s. But aren't the Apple II versions hidden in the iOS version as some sort of an Easter egg? Maybe they are. I had not heard that. I think Wayne Arthurton was talking about that at Kansas Fest last month. That would be kind of cool. It wouldn't take too much space, would it? A couple of 140K images. Unless it's optimized for Retina. Ooh. Dope. An Apple II game optimized for Retina. How about that? Uh, one nice thing about the Mac version of The Bard's Tale, available through the App Store for $10, is that it actually can sync your saved games with your iOS version. You still have to buy the two versions of the game separately, but once you have them both, they can talk to each other. Yeah, I think that's probably something that's uh, going to be, we're going to be seeing a lot more in just in games in general, uh, where you can sync across multiple copies of, of whatever game you purchased. Another classic Apple II game just came out for iOS, one that really had me excited because I used to play this all the time when I was a kid. And before I could play it, I would study and memorize the advertisements for it in Mad Magazine. And I would send them postal letters asking, why is this coming out for other platforms but not the Apple II? And finally, it did come out for the Apple II, and now it's out for the iOS, and I can play Spy versus Spy all over again. Yay! Either of you ever a fan of that game? Uh, I spent some time cracking it, but I never played it. <laughs> Why bother cracking it? That's right. <laughs> just just for the challenge? Yeah. Well, I did that with a lot of software. Mm-hmm. There were some. Yeah, there were some uh, pretty crappy titles out there that had some really great protection on them. <laughs> but this was a great game with great protection. Sure. Okay. And there was at least one sequel, The Island Caper or something. And then I just saw on YouTube a video of a third Spy vs. Spy game set in the Arctic. Regardless, it's a great two-player game my brother and I used to play. You go around an embassy or an island trying to find different parts of a portfolio, like there's the briefcase, the map, uh the, the key, stuff like that. You need to find it all, assemble it, and make it to the exit. But you can only carry so many items at a time, so you can hide the stuff once you find it and then booby trap the thing where you found or the, the place where you put it. And you need to remember what trap you place there because then you have to come back with the correct item with which to defeat the trap. Your opponent, unless he was watching your half of the screen, won't know what trap he's used at, and he'll just have to take his chance, and he might explode or get acid poured on him or have a spring throw him into the wall. It was great. It was very very antagonistic because you're both trapped in a room, and you know all the doors have booby traps on them, and you're like, okay, neither of us are going to win unless one of us leaves. And I'm like, well, it's not going to be me because I know that door is trapped. And the guy's like, well, fine, we'll just sit here and do nothing. (laughs) <laughs> I guess that does sound like two little brothers playing together, doesn't it? Exactly so. But the iOS version has been optimized, new graphics, new interface. But apparently if you d- play it a certain amount, I don't know if you have to accomplish certain achievements or just beat the game, you unlock the Apple II graphics mode. 
Wait, so so you can get the Apple II, you can play the actual Apple II version of this on the iPad? Visually, yeah. Obviously, the interface will still be that of the iPad. Well, sure. Or you could just play it in ActiveJS on the iPad. Sure. But then that would be free, wouldn't it? Well, it would. Did either of you at least read Mad Magazine? Yes, I did. I, I read it. I never played the game. Never played the Spy vs. Spy game, but I certainly loved reading the magazine. Mm-hmm. Up, up until the point where I told my mom a joke that was in one of the magazines, and she said, all right, you don't get to have that anymore. I had an almost identical experience. Imagine. Go figure. Were you more of a black spy or a white spy guy? I just like to watch them fight. <laughs> I was always rooting for the white guy. And that's... What I always played as in the game, and I guess that made my brother the... Yeah, well... Racist. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Anyway. Equal opportunity uh, violence watcher. Sure, yeah. But I I think statistically, if you look at the lifespan of Mad Magazine, the white spy does win a little bit more often than the black spy. Hmm, so we should be rooting for the underdog, I guess. Apparently. I don't know. But continuing the trend of Apple II ports to iOS, another game is coming out soon. This is one that I first heard about as Mike and I were driving from Kansas City to Denver, and I was listening to Major Nelson's Xbox podcast, and I suddenly heard them talking about Loadrunner. Now, there was a Loadrunner game for the Xbox 360 released in 2009, and now they were talking about a portable version. And it sounded like they were talking about something called Loadrunner Classic. I'm like, that'd be fantastic. Is this a new Xbox game? It has to be because I'm listening to the Xbox podcast. Well, everybody on the show is a Microsoft employee. So when I rewound the show, I found out they were actually talking about Loadrunner Classic for Windows Phone 7. They are releasing or they have released a Loadrunner game that has the original Apple II graphics and all 150 original Apple II levels for Windows Phone 7. (laughs) Cool. And is that the only platform it's going to be on? That's the only platform it is on, but it will be coming out for iOS and Android. I just recently found out. Oh, good. Those versions aren't out yet, but they look very cool. They have added a few new features, like how you can swap out the color palette to whatever you want, and there is some sort of a magnification feature you can enable to give you sort of a scrolling field of play. But nonetheless, yeah, these are the original levels, and it doesn't look like they've messed with the formula too much, so it should be a lot of fun. Or, again, you can just load it into ActiveGS. And they even got uh, the original creator, Douglas E. Smith. Um, I don't know if he approved it, but uh, he certainly seems to be excited about it. Well, yeah, he's certainly aware of it. He's quoted on the website, loadrunnerclassic.com. Yep. And this is the way that he intended it to be played. On anyway. a Windows Phone 7? That's right. Back in 1983. Yes. Mm. Kind of like how George Lucas thought, someday I'll have the technology to finish these movies. <laughs> Put Jar Jar in everything. Put Jabba yes. the Hutt out on the runway. And pretty soon we'll have Jar Jar in Loadrunner. It'll be Jar Jar Runner. There you go. <laughs> you don't like that idea, David? Uh, not a fan. <laughs> of Loadrunner or Star Wars? <laughs> I'm putting Jar Jar in Star Wars. Ah, or anything else. Yeah. Except maybe Carbonite. Han shot first, damn it. Hey, this is a clean show. Oh. Han shot first, darn it. <laughs> Much better. That will get you. past the censors. I'm sure it will. Yeah. Well, that would be you, right? Since you're, the, you're editing the show, aren't you the censor? Exactly oh, you so. Neither of you will even be left when I'm done editing the show. <laughs> That's <laughs> probably are. for the best. <laughs> 
and yet it'll still be two hours long. And finally, one more game coming to iOS. Mike? What? What, are you only responding to Mr. Mike now? Uh, sure, yeah, okay. You talk about something for a change. Well, I'm looking... Oh, Karatika. <laughs> That's not how you pronounce it. How do you pronounce it? Karateka. Whatever. <laughs> so, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about uh, Jordan Mechner and uh, Mechner, Mechner, whatever his name is. Um, and we're covering the source code of Prince of Persia and, and some of his other projects. And it looks like his popular Apple II title, Karateka, is also coming to iOS. And I have not read anything else about that. So if you have anything to add, Ken, now would be the time. What makes you think I know anything about it? Uh, well, you put it in there. And and it's a game, and I'm a gamer. but that's... And you didn't even put a link in there. You're, you're stereotyping. You well, well, that's what I do. That's why you hired me. Uh, the name is being used for a brand new game coming out for Xbox 360 and PS3 this fall. And they have announced that there will also be an iOS version. Actually, they didn't announce it. There was a leak. And... Somebody picked up on it, but it sounds like a... Actually, let me read the description of the game, because that was attached to the same leak. That was It was an image, basically, of the uh, metadata box that had the game's rating, etc. That sounds like a carefully placed leak. (laughs) Perhaps. Touch Arcade reported on this, and the description of the game says, In this rhythm-fighting game, players assume the role of three Japanese warriors attempting to rescue a kidnapped princess from an evil warlord. Players engage in frenetic one-on-one battles with various enemies using timed martial arts moves to stun opponents and drain their health meters. Matches are highlighted by battle cries, colorful light flashes, and slow motion effects. When player's character is knocked out, a brief cutscene depicts him falling down the side of a mountain. Ow. You know, now that I actually think about that, it's possible that this isn't a leak so much as a hoax because of a, a rhythm fighting game. Uh, this sounds more like Parappa the Rapper than it does Karateka. The what? The what the what? I had that game on, on my, what was it, PS1. Yes. Parappa the Rapper. Oh, I bet, <laughs> I bet I can bust some rhymes out from that. From Punch, memory. kick, oh, it's all in the do. mind. Oh, man, that brings back memories. <laughs> it's a fantastic game. Chop, chop, block. That's right. Turn and pause. Okay, wow. sorry, I'll stop now. I feel like Master Onion is in the room with us. <laughs> you guys are nerds. <laughs> wow, says who? <laughs> but yeah, anyway, Parappa was great, but I never imagined Karateka going that way. What, so, just completely silly, you mean? Uh, a, a rhythm game. Uh, oh, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know. Maybe this is real, maybe it's not, but... It's got Jordan McNay behind it, so I'm sure it's going to be good, right? It's got to be. It's got to be. Nobody I knew called it Karateka. Of course, nobody I knew had the real copy either. <laughs> but that means you didn't find the Easter egg on it either. Oh, well, that's that was something I wanted to mention about the iOS version. If you've got an iPhone and you turn it upside down, will it play upside down? If you've locked the screen, yes. There you go. That was the weirdest thing. In the past month, probably a dozen different video game websites reported how the greatest Easter egg of all time was for the Apple II, and they were all talking about Karateka, and they had this YouTube video of it being played upside down. I'm like, really? Really? This is news? I mean, <laughs> to them, I, it must be, yeah. They all grew up with the pirated version. Yeah, I, I could understand one website reporting on this, but everybody picked up on it. Like, oh my gosh, nobody had ever discovered this before. 
Well, imagine if nobody had seen the the last episode of the Bob Newhart show and then, you know, it shows up 10, 20 years later. It would be pretty mind-blowing. I suppose, but people did see this. I mean, like, I, I feel like putting out a news release saying, hey, John Romero's Wolfenstein 3D, you thought that was the original Wolfenstein? No, here it is. It's Silas Warner. Right. And everybody would be like, OMG. And I'd be like, RLY. I don't know. I just got a little frustrated that things that are just taken as common knowledge within our retro community is just a marvel to anybody else. Well, there was a similar thing that went on. It was, uh, where was it reported? It might have been in um, a competing podcast about Retro Max, but uh, it was, they were talking about, uh, one of the websites was talking about uh, these, these fabulous images that were in the uh, Macintosh 2 ROMs and it, or the, the 2 SE ROMs and all these heretofore never, never before seen. And we had to write some custom Perl code to tease them out. And really, you've never seen a run length encoded image. Okay. Whatever. Um, never mind. It's been known about for the past 20 years, but hey, it's news now. Right. It's news to you. I guess everything comes back if you give it long enough. There you go. Maybe we'll all be wearing bell bottom jeans by the time this podcast airs. Woohoo. And another thing that's coming back is IMSI. IMSI was, uh, the, I believe it was the second. S100 computer company that uh, was formed and competed with MITS. And if I understand correctly, the IMSI company is up for sale, and their intended buyer is Vince Briel of Briel Computers. Oh, cool. He mentioned at Kansas Fest, especially after attending the session on Kickstarter, that he's very keen to run a Kickstarter of his own to raise the money for IMSI. He has not actually done so yet, so I don't know if we're jumping the gun or if he wants to keep this on the DL but he's definitely mentioned it in public fora, such as the Kansas Fest email list. He's going to aim for, I think, about $12,000, which will be the 10000 minimum he needs to buy the company, minus Kickstarter fees. And I think he has a stretch goal of 35000 which will fully fund the purchase of the company. And this would allow him to do whatever he wants with all the intellectual property that this company created, including maybe uh, sell the original computer again or make replicas of his own or whatever he wants. I know that if you have an IMSI, you can call this computer uh, in Colorado Springs the War Operation Planned Response and, and play a global thermonuclear war with it. Oh, I heard that's excellent. It is, yes. And oh, doesn't, but- if I re- recall correctly, doesn't that same computer also have tic-tac-toe? Yes, it, it has a number of games that you can play. Wow. But then you'll have Dabney Coleman jumping down your throat, so that's not well, good. But you do get to date Ali Sheedy. I think she's worth it. So no... ETA on when Briel will be launching that Kickstarter, but we'll keep you informed right here on this podcast. So stay tuned. The Open Inside Podcast. Hey, stranger things have happened. True. You know, there have been new episodes of 1 Megahertz. Shocking. Jogging briefly back to the gaming kick that we were on with iOS, there is a article at PC World entitled Free Retro Games to Suit Every Gamer. And he reviews several games that we've covered here before, such as remakes of King's Quest by AGD Interactive. But one thing that I'd never seen before is called Dungeon Master Java. This is a recreation of the Apple II first-person RPG that you can play on pretty much any modern machine. It's written in Java, so you can download it for Mac OS X or Windows. Or even Linux. I suppose. I wonder if it would run in VMO2. Hmm. 
Were either of you Dungeon Master fans? Alas, no. I think we might have talked about this on a previous show. I remember talking about how the point-and-click interface and the real-time action just didn't jive for me. Yeah, yeah, I remember that discussion. I actually enjoyed Dungeon Master quite a bit. Well, maybe I'll give it a second chance. I mean, it's a free download after all. And when we're not playing games, it seems like there are plenty of movies that we can be watching instead. Well, not last month, but the month before that, we talked about the Rock of Fire Explosion documentary um, and that you could buy the DVD. Well, it's also available now for uh, streaming on Netflix. So if you have a subscription, you don't even need to go and buy the DVD. Although, if you do buy the... See, the great thing about documentaries like Rock, the Rock of Fire Explosion and some of these others is that if you get the actual media, you tend... you you usually get a bunch of extras. Like the Rock of Fire doc on Netflix is just the documentary. You don't get any of the the interviews and, and um, extras, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, th- that's one thing I've always been concerned about with Netflix. It sort of reminds me of the DivX format of DVD that came out alongside the original DVD format where you buy the disc and you have 48 hours to watch it and then you just throw the disc away when you're done. Right. You know, like they're like, oh, no more late fees, no more having to return the movie. And I'm like, yeah, but it also doesn't come with any of the extras. It's just the movie. There's no feelies, yeah. Well, not even feelies, but like deleted scenes, director commentary. You don't get that stuff when you stream stuff off Netflix, do you? Uh, typically not, unless the company that produced the uh, <clears throat> the company that produced the documentary or, or movie or whatever uh, made content specifically for Netflix. Right. So it just feels like you're giving up a lot of content in exchange for the convenience of streaming it. Yep. But uh, that seems to be the way that modern video is going anyway. Right. Nothing to touch, nothing to nothing to deal with. You just point, click, and pay. Right, because that worked so well for OnLive. Are you familiar with that uh, company, David? No, no, I'm I'm not. I, I I have a real hard time paying for digital content, so I I have never, will never pay for a uh, a, a a piece of music online. Um, I I buy CDs or DVDs, and I'll rip them if I need to. But um, there's there's I, I'm so mad about dr digital DRM and everything else. I, I own it, darn it. I'm gonna put it on whatever device I want. So. Um, these downloadable things just um, don't interest me. I don't mind digital media that comes with no DRM and that I can put on anything I want. Like a lot of the MP3s I buy from Amazon or iTunes, I can burn those on a CD. I can make backups. I can put them on an iPod or on a non-Apple MP3 player. That I'm cool with. I'm more concerned about stuff like the on-live games or Xbox 360 live arcade games because those... You download them to your Xbox, and they stay on your Xbox, and there's no way to get them off. And should the Xbox Live Arcade ever shut down, which it will someday, you know, several years after the someday. Xbox 720 comes out, sure, then you won't be able to download those games again if you lose them. The patches and updates will never be available again. They're they're just gone. Right. Yeah, there's, there's a, a similar uh, question about games, like especially now that companies like Ubisoft – require you to have an online connection to their servers to pay in, to, to buy any of their game or to play any of their games um, even after you purchase them it's what happens if they turn off the server for you know their their version of Prince of Persia or what if Ubisoft gets bought by a company and then gets shut down you don't get to play those games ever again mm-hmm. it's that's an especially ridiculous requirement when you're trying to play a one player game right 
It's not like you're connecting to a server to get matched into a death match against other people. You're just playing it by yourself, and you got to be online. Yeah, you basically the game connects to their servers to make sure that you have permission to play the game, and that's it. That's really tough to swallow. Well, it's it's very much the way Apple's DRM used to work with iTunes and buying buying uh, songs. But they've mostly moved beyond that. Although I did, I don't remember how I found this feature in iTunes, but it basically did a scan of all the songs I'd purchased from Apple that had DRM on it and offered to upgrade them to iTunes Plus for me, which had no DRM. Mm-hmm. But see, iTunes Plus songs sometimes cost a buck twenty-nine, whereas just plain old iTunes songs with DRM on them cost ninety-nine cents. I think they call that bait and switch. <laughs> Almost, yeah. So the upgrade fee for my several years worth of songs that I had bought was going to be like eight hundred dollars. Wow, <laughs> that's crazy. Like wow. So now I can actually own the stuff I've bought. Yeah, imagine so, such a deal. Anyway, yeah, I mean, nowadays, actually, most of the Xbox games I buy are digital because I don't want to spend 50 bucks, and I don't want to... It's not even a matter of going to the store. I live right near a game store. It's just that the games I want to play are the ones that are being released digitally. Just like all those iOS games we reviewed earlier in the show, those aren't going to be published on a disc. Right. There is no other means of getting them. Right. If there was, I would probably go for that. Just like you with your CDs, you have that option very often as opposed to getting it through iTunes. I don't necessarily have that option with Xbox games or on-live games or whatever. So it's it's not necessarily an appropriate topic for an Apple II podcast, but it is a concerning one that I think everybody listening to the show should be thinking about. Or you could just delete that whole stuff. Thanks. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. A couple of months ago, Evan Koblenz was on CNN talking about classic Apple hardware that's for sale at ridiculous prices. I think he may have been speaking speaking specifically about the Apple One. I think CNN took something he said out of context, or at least something he just meant to be a flippant remark, because he said, yeah, hold on to your original iPods, because they might be worth something someday. And I wrote a brief blog response to that saying that the, you know, the original iPods, the original iPads, they weren't nearly as revolutionary or as rare as the Apple One, of which there were only 200 made. And I was surprised that Carrington on the Retro Computing Roundtable picked up on my blog post and he said that I called them out and took them to task. I was like, oh, I, I didn't really mean to do that. But I do nonetheless believe that the original iPad will never go for as much as the Apple One, but there is somebody on eBay who feels otherwise. There is currently on eBay a first-generation iPad, 16 gigabytes, Wi-Fi, no 3G, in the shrink wrap for sale for $1,100. Yeah, my thought about thoughts about this one are come, come again in another 10, 20 years, and maybe so. But on the other hand, it's, it's a big, giant battery hanging on the back of that thing. What's it going to do 10 years from now? You know, we don't really know what the failure mode of these giant batteries are that are hanging off the back of the iPads. Um, but, but as you said, too, there was a bozillion of these things put out. It, it isn't at all like the Apple One uh, and its rarity. I guess the closest analog would be if you had a, an Apple One or an Apple II still in the box. For example, Dan Budiak a couple of years ago bought an Apple IIc that had never been opened. He spent over $2,000 on it. And this iPad has never been opened. Somebody had the foresight, assuming this is the original shrink wrap, to have never opened it in the first place, thinking it would be worth something someday. Hmm. So maybe that's what makes it valuable. Not that it's an iPad, but that it's an unopened iPad. Well, that's true, too. You would get that 
open box experience. And Apple is really good about that first, you know, that the, the first opening experience. Um, I still remember the first uh, Macintosh I bought. And the, this was back in the early, well, the mid iMac days, uh, the all-in-one iMac days. Um, it, it, and it was... It was my first experience of of taking pictures of a, a an unboxing. This was I don't know 2002 or so, and the experience of opening the thing up and and what you saw first and what you saw next was I don't know just as much fun as, as using the thing. It's it really is kind of a cool thing. So I, I can see um, just like Dan and and his experience with the 2C. Uh, yeah, you, you could I can see that that. Uh, doing the unboxing would be an interesting a- aspect of it. That's a high price tag for an unboxing experience. Especially one that you could watch on YouTube. <laughs> well, you know, Dan paid something for the experience, and, and he felt it was valuable enough to him. And he, I, I, in, and I remember all the coverage that happened back then, and he was unapologetic. Like, dude, this is what I wanted to do, and it was cool, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, that, that was worth it to him. And he so, documented the process in photos, if not video. I, I really enjoyed watching that too. I I agree with him. So if the i the original iPad was my thing, then yeah, well, ten years, twenty years from now, I sure pay a grand for it to do it. But certainly now there is not yet enough nostalgia around this device. It's only two years old, whereas the Apple II C represented Dan's childhood. There is nobody with disposable income enough yet who can buy an iPad because it represents their childhood. Consider the case of the three-year-old whose first experience with the iPad is, you know, swiping his hand, his or her hand across the thing and watching stuff move. And they pick up the magazine and says, Daddy, Daddy, why don't these pictures move? Um, right. Their first experience is the iPad. And so 20 years from now, they might feel the way we feel about the Apple II. That I can see. But as you said, in the year 2012, not so much. Right, right. So I, I've, I think I've contradicted myself about three times now as I've sat, sat here and talked with you guys about this. <laughs> Man, you don't even need us, do you? You can just have a conversation with yourself. Absolutely. Wonderful. Sounds like my podcast po- co-host. <laughs> Ar- arguing with myself. Oh, no, Dave, you're wrong. No, different podcast, different podcast. Right, right. Sure. All right, let's see. What else do we have on the eBay list this month? It looks like we have another IMSI item. Yeah, we do. Um, this is the Houston Brothers MSI. It was uh, it went up for auction on eBay earlier this year, I believe, and uh, didn't sell. And uh, didn't sell this time either. Hmm. Just like that iPad, that actually had been listed before and has been relisted. So neither of these items are selling on their either of their tries. Yeah, this one uh, they they listed it for fifteen thousand uh, dollars. I buy it now. Plus three hundred dollars shipping uh, by UPS Ground. They did include a, a a rather extensive history in the in the item description on eBay. Um, and this particular MSI was did play a, a key role in the, in the development of some early Apple II uh, software. Um, but I don't know that that was enough to justify. Well, in fact, I do know that it was not enough to justify the fifteen thousand dollar price tag because nobody bought it. Why does the headline say, I must save Apple immediately? I mean, I understand that is an acronym, for, but I don't think that's what MSI actually stands for. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's uh, actually outlined in the uh, the backstory that they include in the item description, which as of this recording is still available uh, on eBay. 
It's uh, a lengthy piece, and actually, I believe uh, James and John of the Retro Retro Matcast read the entire thing, uh, the backstory in one of their uh, podcasts. They read it into the record, yeah. Yes. Uh, no need for me to hear then. Right. We'll just tell all our listeners to go listen to a different show. <laughs> but I, I do love the Houston Brothers stories. You know, we've seen them putting some of their memorabilia on on eBay over the past year or two, and I, I really enjoy reading about, about their experiences and how this you know particular artifact uh, affected their lives or whatever. I, it's just kind of a, a neat another vector of history to read about. So I've mm-hmm. definitely enjoyed it. And in case you're curious, I. Uh IMSI, I believe, stands for Information Managed Sciences Associates Incorporated. You said a mouthful. Cough, cough. Google, cough, cough. Uh, Wikipedia. Oh, well, close enough. I never claim to know it all. <laughs> that's why we don't do live shows. Exactly. Actually, that's a uh, a good tangent to go on for the moment. The Retro Computing Roundtable started doing Google Hangouts, which are video podcasts, and they're aware, even as they're recording the show, that some people may only be listening to the audio, so they try not to depend too heavily on visuals. David, I presume that you've listened to Open Apple at some point in our 18-show history. What do you think about us doing a video format? Hmm. Well, then, then you'd have to reveal to us what you actually look like. Well, that's no secret. We got photos on our website. Eh, well, that's true. Um, I, I don't know. I, I've, I've, uh, you know, done some video chatting at work, you know, some presentations over kind of video chatting. It, it's sometimes kind of awkward, um, to where you have to look at the screen and you kind of look at yourself, but your eyes never quite make contact with the, the retina of, of the camera. So it, it's, it's slightly unnatural when you're trying to look at someone's eyes, uh, over a, a video link. And I think it has to do with, you know, whatever the parallax of, not being able to look at the camera directly and look at the image of yourself or whatever it is you're looking at. Um, so finally spinning back to what would this, what, what do I think about, um, doing it, uh, video wise, uh, besides being able to show pictures of things, most of which we would probably be able to show, um, you know, on a browser or whatever. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing the value of, of watching bodies move around too. Yeah, I find audio content easier to consume. I'm not going to be watching a video while I drive to work or while I go for a jog, but I can certainly listen to an audio show. Yep, exactly. Mike, you have any reservations one way or the other? I'm not interested in doing a video show. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't even need to explain why. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fine. Well, it sounds like we're unanimous then. It's easy enough for me. Cool. Well, stick around. I might change my mind. You're allowed. Let's see. We have. Uh, we'll, we'll let the uh, we'll let the RCR guys go out and explore new frontiers. <laughs> That's right. We're happily stuck in the past, right here. That's our re- right. doing our retro show in the retro way. Let's see. We have an a game that was recently on eBay, Trinity Infocom. This is the nuclear holocaust text adventure from Infocom, as mentioned, and it sold on August 24th for $33 after eight bids with $5 shipping. Now, I actually don't know that I've ever played an Infocom game, I hate to admit. Oh. But you know, but you know, thanks, but I'm going to rehire myself, so there. Okay. But there were so many text adventures I did play as a kid that I might not even have known who made them or what the name of the games were. So I don't think I played this one, but it's possible that I came across some other Infocom game. 
Uh, see, I, I bought Zork One for my Commodore sixty four, so I'm I'm I like the Infocom guys, and and I especially like the Feelies too. They they did such a good job with Feelies as time went on. I don't see an awful lot on on Trinity here. I mean, it looks kind of cool with the comic book and all, but but uh, that's my favorite part about Infocom is their <laughs> their Feelies. This auction says that it came with the original box and all supporting material, but they didn't specifically list any feelies. I don't know if this game didn't come with them. Well, see, I think that the uh, the comic that they show here, that probably constitutes one. Not the same as the Ankh that you get with Ultimas. Well, no, nothing can beat the Ankh. <laughs> Is there something you're looking up, Mike? Yeah, I'm just pulling up Trinity on the... <clears throat> what, the character from The Matrix? Yes. That. Hubba hubba. Yeah, okay, yeah. According to to Wikipedia, the packaging for Trinity contained a map of the Trinity site, a cardboard sundial marked with odd symbols, the illustrated story of the atom bomb, the educational comic book, and instructions on how to fold an origami crane. I remember that. I remember that Trinity was one of my. It was my second favorite. Um, Infocom game after a mind forever voyaging. So all that stuff that you listed must be what the auctioneer means by supporting material. I believe so. And did you know that the Apple II is named after a nuclear bomb? What? <laughs> I wrote a blog post about this a couple of years ago. Something I just stumbled across by accident on May fifth, nineteen fifty-five. The United States detonated a nuclear bomb as part of a test, and the code name for that test was the Apple II. Hmm. Hmm. Probably not related to the computer. But it was related to the Apple I test, which had been previously detonated. And, of course, Infocom Trinity is named after the very first nuclear weapon test conducted on July 16, 1945. That being called Trinity. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there is a tie-in there. Let's see. It looks like there's a name tag on eBay. You know anything about that, Mike? Um, I don't. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know what this is. That one. That one was discussed on that other uh, podcast having to do with Retro Max. Yeah, this uh, was the, the lamest piece of hardware ever. Why do you think so? Oh, the name tag. It, it's it's bogus, right? It's this was a, a name tag that was printed out for Steve Jobs, but he never went to the conference, and so some other you know, Apple employee or, or whoever picked it up off the table. Um, so, you know, some admin somewhere printed out a, a bajillion name tags and stuck them on a table someplace. And uh, Steve Jobs never saw it, never touched it. I, I don't see value. Was that all spelled out in the item's description? Yes, it was. Huh. So somebody paid $900 for this Steve Jobs name tag labeled Apple Computer Vision for the Future. And they knew that it had never been touched or held or anything else like you just mentioned. And they still paid $900 for it. No, it's still available. Uh, bidding, bidding has ended. No, no, so I got relisted. Ah, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's relisted for $550 uh, with a buy it now. Ah, my bad. Yes, the $900 was the original asking price. Nobody fell for it. So now they want 550 I wonder how low they'll go before they finally get a sucker. I mean buyer. <laughs> I'd pay 20 bucks for this. You know, I'm, I'm a Steve watcher, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Not that much. Not so much. And finally, you guys got a couple of Apple threes that you found on eBay lately. Why? Yes, we do. There's now and again you'll see Apple threes come around. Um, you know, one of the things that you you have a harder time finding are the Apple three pluses, but uh, we do have a couple of regular old Apple threes here. Um, this first one is uh, 
Let's see here. We've got the rare collector's retro computer, monitor three, second drive, and manuals. Um, my big, my big trouble with, with, uh, any of the apples that, that are being sold that have, uh, keys missing or keys broken off, they're, uh, they're tough to fix. You know, you've got to unsolder them and find another key in order to, to, uh, you know, solder it back in and make it work. Um, one of the really cool things about the Apple III is the arrow keys. And on this one, you'll see one of the arrow keys is, uh, is missing. Which one is it? Uh, I think the, the right, uh, the, the right arrow. Uh, if you pushed it with varying degrees of pressure, it would go slower or faster. Well, okay, there was two speeds, but it was a slow speed and a fast speed. But as you pushed harder down on the keyboard, it would have another detent where it would go faster. So good luck finding a replacement key there. Um, so this one, gosh, this, the link I've got is on on uh, a non-English speaking version of eBay. So I don't know how many how much how many dollars five hundred euros are, but whatever it is, it looks like too much. Yeah, this was a a Belgian, the Belgian version of eBay, and the only reason I listed it, I, I had it down there at all, was the it has a relatively low serial number. Um, but that's but this is from the the uh, the Irish plant rather than the, the the Dallas assembly line, so I don't know that the serial numbers were matching up at all. And in fact, it doesn't look like it was because here in the United States, if you have an Apple three that was produced in Dallas and it has a serial number lower for, uh, lower than fourteen thousand, um, those are exceedingly rare because Apple recalled and replaced all of those. Right. Yep. And but, operationally, you don't want to have one because they, they you know they're failure prone. Right. Yeah. So if you have a working one today, then that's, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> um, but this one has, this one shipped with 256K, which means it's a later. Yep. Apple it, three. It's already, yeah, it's already got the improvements. So. Yep. And it does come up with a diagnostic RAM, uh, RAM message when you boot it up, which means that the RAM board is bad. Yep. So. Not is that the easy one to fix? Well, it would be, it would be easier. It, you, they have a picture of the the message, and um, basically the way it works is if you get that message and there's it, it says di- it says diagnostic RAM at the top, and then you have a sort of a little matrix of dots across it. Uh, each dot represents one RAM chip on the board, and if one of the RAM chips is bad, then it'll show up as a, I think it's a, an inverse X, so that it'll so that you can figure out which one to replace. If there's no uh, X's on the board, but you get that message, it means the actual board itself is bad, which is uh, much harder to to repair. If it was just a chip, you could swap that out with uh, an existing uh, with it with a good a known good chip. Well, and, and sometimes with Apple threes, you can get lucky um, by just mashing all the chips down in their sockets. Yeah. Yeah, there is that, but for for 500 euros, I don't know that I would want to take that risk. No, indeed. How much would you pay for this one? Maybe fifty bucks. So we can contrast that with the next one, the next Apple III, which is really a good example, I think, of of how to list something on eBay. Mm-hmm. Um, they show uh, the machine in full working order. They demonstrate that it's running the diagnostics. Um, this machine looks like it's in in really good shape. The the shipping looks it looks like the shipping is pretty high, right? The eighty dollars or so. But you got to remember that. The, uh, the, the, the base plate, or not the base plate, but the, uh, the, the machine itself, the, fo- uh, the Apple III 
what case was was made at a uh, a foundry that normally made what radiators uh, casting a, this thing out of aluminum so it, which is all to say this thing is heavy and it's got a profile drive everything about this is heavy so 80 bucks might not be out of line um, yeah, the, the the basic cpu piece weighs 26 pounds by itself which is more than double what an apple II weighs that's right and and the uh, that big giant drive the profile too that's that's not not cheap to ship around but uh, but those are those are very fragile so the, the packing would probably cost quite a bit if they packed it properly yeah exactly we'd be in trouble if it was allowed to just rattle around in there cuz there's a lot of momentum you can generate with that much weight yeah so, and this guy's done what sounds like a really nice once-over, right? He's gone through the power supply and replaced the, the capacitors, which can explode with um, devastating and very smelly results. So, <laughs> that's happened. Um, he put new memory in it. And another, you know, interesting feature about the Apple III, too, as everybody knows, is the, the light on the keyboard. Um, he's replaced the light in it and gives you a, an extra one. If If the light burns out, the computer won't boot. It stops on that diagnostic screen, just like Mike was talking about before. It stops there and won't continue the boot process. So you've got to have a working light bulb in the keyboard for an Apple III to run. So he put in a new one and gives you a spare one. So this is just a, a really nice, clean example of an Apple III. And this one also has the uh, the On3 512K memory board um, in it, which is – those are very difficult to find because Apple never made – um, anything more than 256K for these machines. Yep, that's very true. So Sauce, the operating system, will see it and will deal with it. But, right. Uh, and, and in fact, on three, when they when they put the board out, they had to issue a patch disk for, for a bunch of different applications because Sauce could see it, but certain applications could not. That's right. They'd make assumptions about the memory map and how many yep. how many banks to expect. Yep. Um, oh, and there was one other, and I can't find the link for this right now. There's, we were talking about Apple threes and and prices on eBay and stuff. There was an Apple three that was listed recently, and it's um, we'll have the link in the show notes. It was missing keys. It didn't have the case, the uh, the the case that sits over the CPU portion, um, and but it, it worked and it had and it sold for one hundred and twenty seven dollars, which. Seemed a little bit excessive until I took you took a closer look and you could see that there was actually the Titan three plus two E uh, emulator inside it. So somebody actually got a really good deal because oh. those emulator boards by themselves go for three or four hundred dollars. I was going to say that alone that would do it absolutely. Yep. So somebody somebody got a good one there. My uh, my first experience buying an Apple three on eBay was actually a very good one. I they didn't list it in the uh, listing itself, but there was. A, uh, a Microsoft Z80 card plugged into the back of the thing. So that was a, a really nice extra that nice. You know, was probably worth something. But it's it's cool that, that I've got that now, too, as a, another way of running in my Apple III. Yeah, those, uh, those, those cards are, well, like most third-party cards for the Apple III, those things uh, tend to be hard to find and they're expensive. So when I when I see a listing on eBay for an Apple III, I always hope that they'll show it either with the top off or at least a picture of the back with the vent so you can kind of guess at what the cards might be in it. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten pretty good at identifying cards through those vents. Right, <laughs> yeah. Well, if you two are done geeking out on the Apple III, maybe we can wrap the show up. Dude, I can go all night. <laughs> oh, boy. 
Don't get ideas. You might end up doing your own podcast. <laughs> no, not for the one other person in the world that cares about Apple threes. Yeah, here it is. Hang on a sec. Let me. Yeah, I think he's speaking right now. <laughs> what? Huh? Oh, look at that! One hundred twenty-seven bucks. Yeah, there's plenty of good parts on there too. Um, yeah, exactly. You pull those, pull the Titan out, and then use the rest of it for parts on a on another machine. Even on the thumbnail, I I see the jumper Titan. Yep. <laughs> now now we're done geeking out, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you sure? I think so. All right. Maybe. Okay. Probably. If that is the case, and that brings to a close another episode of Open Apple. How has your time on the show been, David? Neat 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 neat. There was that the the theme song from Tron. No, isn't that your your theme? Oh, from oh this show. Well, we never is, listened to it. Is, so. is that what you were trying to sound like? Yeah, I, I'm not a musical guy, so you know, whatever. <laughs> I, uh, we I have so to. many theme songs. There's there's a different song for every bumper, and I have another podcast. Which by the time this show airs, my other podcast will have concluded its run, 18 episodes, and Monday, September 3rd is the final episode, so I can put that behind me. But yeah, there are just there are so many intros and outros and segments and bumpers that I can't keep all the shows straight. I've never heard of a bumper before. That is a word I'd never heard before Mike used it, and then I looked it up, and that's actually what they're called in the radio business. Sure enough, there's a word. Hey. Huh. About that. Mike actually didn't make something up. It's, it's rare, but yeah, it, it has been known to happen. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, to answer your question, um, it, th- this is all kind of fun. Um, geeking out with people, like-minded people. What you know? Huh? What what better? It seems like there ought to be a convention or something where everybody gets together in one place and physically, you know, meets face to face. Wouldn't that be neat? You mean like an open apple fest? Kind of, yeah. And maybe we could have it somewhere. I don't know, in the middle of the country or something. So Some, somewhere central, someplace yeah. central. Yeah, you know, Kansas yeah. or whatever, or Missouri. Uh huh. Sure. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'll get right on that. Sure. All right. Good. I don't like that idea. <laughs> It'll never work. <laughs> It'll never happen. No. Nobody would come all the way across the country for something like that. Or no. across the world, like from Australia. That too. Yep. Yeah. Or Canada. Yeah. And where is it that you would be coming from, David, if you don't mind us asking? Ah, uh, lovely North Carolina. Oh, lovely. So would you consider making that drive or train or flight out to Kansas City someday? Well, Rich Dreher and uh, Dave Schmenk and I have mumbled at each other that, you know, we probably ought to go together and get get together and go all at once and that sort of thing. Because, you know, e- each of them has been, of course. Um, and my only holdout is I I got to cook up something to show. You know, I've got to have have something to reveal at the at the at Kansas Fest. So. Yeah, but that can be as easy as an update to ADT Pro. Yeah, I, <laughs> I do that all the time. That's no exactly. fun. Just hold back until you get to Kansas Fest. Oh, I can't hold back. <laughs> it's a disease. Hey, hey David, what uh, what part of North Carolina are you from? Uh, lovely Cary, North Carolina, which is a, a sleepy suburb of Raleigh. Oh, okay. I was stationed at uh, Cherry Point for a while. Oh, we drive by Cherry Point. Um, it, it, I, I do the uh, YMCA guides and princesses things with my my daughters and we they have the ymca has camps out on the the coast and so we we drive by cherry point and listen to the airplanes and things sure um they have a sign uh assuming that i'm thinking about this and not seymour johnson but uh, they have a sign out front that says pardon our noise it's the sound of freedom (laughs) that sounds right yeah 
it gives me goosebumps as I drive by that. That's just, it's so awesome. So it's my little, you know, bit of patriotism. Nice. I like it. So anyway, okay. that's where I's at. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure getting to know you all the way from North Carolina. I'm glad we were able to get you onto the Open Apple podcast and talk about your many accomplishments, contributions, histories, and games, and Apple 3s, and eBay auctions, and more and more. <laughs> this sounds like an advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> we are always promoting ourselves because nobody else will. Oh, yeah, probably. What? It's it's lonely being us. Oh. So let's see. And I didn't. I only chewed up 1.1 gig. Not bad. Hey, hey, I can, you know, I, I'm sure our listeners will love downloading it. Oh. <laughs> a one gigabyte episode. Of <laughs> Here it is, the raw audio with burps and everything. <laughs> no edit. Edit it yourself. Mix your own tracks. <laughs> you know, there is a website uh, that Rift Tracks owns. It's called, I think, Cuts.com, where you basically just take a YouTube video and you press buttons on a soundboard and you get the guys from Mystery Science Theater chiming in whatever you want whenever you want oh cool maybe we should do something like that like an open apple soundboard just take our most common sound bites and let people make us say them whenever they want <laughs> that's a stupid ebay auction <laughs> how are we going to transition to that <laughs> goodness only knows <laughs> mr mike <laughs> i stopped listening a while ago what <laughs> yeah yeah that's right they stopped listening we should wrap this show up. Thank you, everybody who's been listening. Thank you for your patience, and thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you continue to subscribe and stay subscribed for many months to come. And David, any parting shots? Uh, I think they call that stage fright. Um, thanks for doing what you're doing, guys. Uh, I really enjoy listening to these things myself. I promise I will never, ever listen to this show because I would be embarrassed to tears. But uh, that's it. Thank you. Well, thank you, and we look forward to seeing you at Kansas Fest soon. <laughs> Excellent. And thank you again for ADT Pro. It's a great program and for all your other contributions. We appreciate oh, it. Oh, fantastic. Thanks much. Thanks, David. You bet. Bye-bye. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Do I hit stop now? Yes, you may hit stop. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Open Apple Podcast. This is August 2012, and you're listening to episode number 19. Despite Ken's best efforts, yes, I am back. Actually, it's the September episode. Ah, uh, damn it.